What's really good, everybody? This is Nathan Albach, and welcome to the podcast where we get into people's stories and go down a bunch of rabbit holes about what's really good in the world. So much is going on right now. Uh, brand Twitter was out of control last week. <laughs> Uh, super hot in the media with this whole Sunny D tweet that went viral and pissed a bunch of people off because it was sort of interpreted as them commodifying depression, essentially. Then uh, the Netflix Twitter account later on insinuated that they were horny. So, yeah, just not a great week for brands who practice this whole humanization thing on social media and i know a lot of these social media managers and the work itself is it's just very gray right now i mean there's just a lot of change happening in the landscape of social media in general and in culture in general so uh, a lot of like walking a thin line for brands that definitely needs to be talked about more and hopefully i'll be getting to cover the topic at large on the podcast coming up just to kind of lay out as many thoughts on everything as I can, because this isn't something that's going to go away. Uh, It's only going to get more polarized and more integrated into our daily lives. So it's good to stay aware of what's happening and just keep these conversations going. Um, Anyway, now for today's podcast, uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with Gracie Hughes, who you may know as at Cotton Can Daddy on Twitter. (laughs) It's such a good handle. Uh, she's a joke writer and another one of these fully immersed personalities online, uh, along with people like Viking, who I did an interview with recently, and uh, Kellen and Michaela, who I've also done interviews with in the past. Um, they're just these content creators on Twitter, but part of their draw is how open they are about their personal lives and their identities, and it's all mixed in with their content. So it's not just like, pure jokes you know there's a lot more going on and uh yeah i'm super appreciative just to have this small window into this community of people um we talked about how gracie got into twitter initially and how she got involved with this whole community uh we talked about comedy in general uh she shared a bit about her history of mental health and we got to cover just the whole issue of mental health in culture just generally speaking uh, talked about her recent big move to LA from Canada, where she now works at Funny or Die. And of course, we had to touch on the repeat topic of joke theft, which has been an ongoing thing with this show. It's been really interesting, really uh, fun just to cover with these people because it's so visceral you know, and it really affects the, the joke writers who come up with this stuff. And it's been cool recently, just for the past couple weeks, to follow this whole hashtag fuck fuck Jerry movement that uh, Meg Wright started on Twitter. I guess it started and it's kind of expanded outward from there and it's really cool just to see the awareness spread on this on this whole issue at large so yeah a lot of really great stuff here um i love this conversation and i hope you all take something from it (laughs) super educational right anyway now let's get into what's really good all right we're here with cotton can daddy thanks for coming on the show (laughs) I'm so happy you said my handle. (laughs) 
Oh my god, I think only like four people have actually like said it out loud to me before and it fucking kills me every time. Oh, so good. Thank it's, you. It's one of those handles where you see it and I'm just like I have to do a double take. Like wait, does it actually say that? <laughs> yeah, it's um it's really funny and like I'm glad I went with it just cuz like ultimately my goal is to make myself laugh. Um, so it's been like fun in that respect, but then also like some downsides of it. Like when I was interviewing for this job and I had to say my handle out loud to my now bosses. <laughs> and when I was trying to get my visa and the customs, uh, agents were like, how did your employer find out about you? Um, where do you hear this job from? And I was like, oh, they actually found me on Twitter. And they like pulled up a laptop and opened Twitter and they're like, what's your handle? And I was like in the customs office, like <laughs> cotton candy. <laughs> Was there a story behind it or why? Yeah, there's actually a very good reason for it. So I think back in like 2016, 2017, um, I was an admin for this group on Facebook called In Power. And it was started um, as like a like a safe space for women in Vancouver and like the surrounding lower mainland. But then it grew exponentially and became a place where people would just like share memes or like, it was like a buy and sell group. It was still a safe space. Like if you needed like somewhere to crash or needed a ride, but it was just like the community of um, women in and around uh, BC and the Pacific Northwest. And it was like 35,000 strong at its peak, I think. And we were like on the news and shit. It was pretty cool. Wow. But like, yeah. So like I would just make like really terrible jokes and like puns. And like, that was cause like I had to be on there like pretty frequently like moderating and stuff. Right. So I became known as the group dad. And, uh, so like, I still have people who like on like Facebook will like call me father and dad. And like, I have to explain <laughs> it to people and it's really funny. Um, but then I dyed my hair pink and oh that my was, God. Like, yeah. So I had like bright pink hair, like bubblegum pink hair. And I think it was like three months after that when I started Twitter. Um, so this was last October then. And so I was like, guys, like I need a Twitter handle. What, what should I, what should I be? And then one of these girls was like cotton can daddy. And I was like, holy shit, <laughs> that's so perfect. So yeah. And it's just, uh, it's stuck and we're not changing it. That is perfect. And it's great because now your hair is, is your hair still like that greenish tint? Even though I just saw it, you a second ago. <laughs> so you're still on trick. brand. I know. Yeah. I'm just like a different flavor cotton candy now. Once I like get bored and run out of money, which is going to be pretty soon. This move has been rough. Um, oh. I'm not going to be able to dye my hair anymore. And then it, I guess I'll have to like rebrand somehow. We'll see. Oh, geez. Yeah. Like when I was looking over your Twitter profile, just prepping for this whole thing, I did notice something. I didn't know this before, but I saw that you joined Twitter in 2017, which is insanely recent. So, I mean, like, what initially got you into tweeting? Yeah, um, so my Twitter actually says that I joined in uh, August 2017, which is factually true, but I, like, made an account and immediately, like, freaked out and was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. So then, like, I just never logged in again. And then I came back in October, so my first tweet was actually in October 2017. Um, and I joined Twitter because I was like shit posting to Facebook basically and was like posting all of the dumb stuff that you see on my timeline now to Facebook and my friends very nicely were like I feel like this would do better on Facebook and you got to stop filling our feed with this stuff yeah <laughs> I was like okay <laughs> fine so um yeah I like it took I guess like maybe like five or six of my friends being like get your shit on Twitter you do really well there right um you know join and then I did and like yeah 
it just took off, which is crazy. Did you know anybody initially from Twitter, or how did you uh, get started off the ground from there? Well, I didn't know anybody um, on Twitter going into Twitter. Like, even, like, my real-life friends, nobody has Twitter. Right. Yeah, I um, know, me too. Thing. And then my first viral tweet happened, I think, in, like, the first week of... December or something like that. But yeah, that was like my first like past 100K tweet. And um, then from there, I kind of started gaining like a following. And I think I had like 4,000 or 5,000 followers or something. And uh, Viking followed me. And that was back when Viking only had like 20,000 followers or like 16,000 something. And uh, I I replied to one of his tweets and I can never remember like... (laughs) The actual things that he said, but it was like, you know how he goes off on those like, like coffins or ravioli yes, yeah. or like chicken wings or lollipops, stuff like that. There was like a list of them. And I was like, this is the worst fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, so mad about it. I was like, I hate you so much for this. <laughs> and then for like the next two days, we're just like send me more and more of these thoughts as they like popped into his head for like, this is actually ravioli. And then from there we just started talking and became friends. And then he introduced me to this entire network of uh, Twitter people. That's so insane. So Viking introduced you to all those people. Yeah. Viking was my first Twitter friend. He's the reason why I am who I am today. That's wild. I mean, by the time yeah. this whole thing comes out, you'll probably like I look, was looking before I, we jumped on the call and you're pretty close to 50,000 followers. So, I mean, that's Dude, what it's like, about <laughs> fucking time, though. Like I have like, <laughs> plateaued for the last month or so. And I don't know why. And it's really frustrating. Like it, oh, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but at the same time, the fact that like I've been going viral and at least getting like on my worst tweets, a thousand likes, but nobody's fucking following me. And it's so frustrating that like everyone has surpassed me now. And I'm like, this is so annoying to be stuck there. And I can't remember who I was complaining to. Um, oh, I think I was complaining to my best friend Morgan back home in Vancouver about it. And she was like, yeah, but dude, you have a fucking job. And I was right. like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, fair point, fair point. Um, but yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully I crack 50,000 in the next like week or so. That'd be cool. Yeah, better. I mean, it's so bizarre even just hearing you frame it that way because we all on some level know it's basically fake internet points, but you still care. Like it still matters and you're still comparing yourself to other people it's kind of like an inevitable thing so I mean what's what's your relationship to all that at this point I mean like at first it was definitely like the the ego like you said like the fake internet points and like it boosts your like confidence in a weird way and it like makes you feel good and, like the dopamine and like it's it's yeah. awesome but then I think at this point it was competitive for a little bit where like I definitely never like said this to any of my mutuals but there was a time when me and Shen and a bunch of other people were like neck and neck in followers and it was like I would check every day to be like oh fuck yeah like I'm still in the lead <laughs> um so like that's how that kind of like became less about like my own popularity and success and more about like, I just want to be marginally cooler than all of my internet friends. <laughs> <laughs> it is so weird how we do that. I mean, it bothers me, but at the same time, I mean, I guess when you step back, you've done that type of thing since school. I mean, we all compare ourselves to our peers and or the, our coworkers or in whatever sense. And it's kind of a inevitable part of it, but it does feel like something more is riding on the line with internet followers for whatever it's worth. I mean, at this point you've built a personal brand through it. So like, what's it been like since you started tweeting, like actually not just building a following, but building 
a following of people who know you in a way and kind of come to you for your own personal observations and feelings and happenings in your life. Yeah, that's been the coolest result of all of this. Um, just because before I joined Twitter, I was just terrible at the internet anyway. Like I never had Tumblr. I barely am on Instagram. So like this whole idea of building a personal brand and having that be something that people are actually like interested in and, and look for and are excited about that was like a foreign concept to me. So the fact that like that happened was huge for me, not in like uh, like a superficial like followers kind of way, but as someone who works in art and who uh, has been pursuing comedy for a couple of years, that was like the turning point for my own belief in myself and my own confidence in terms of like, holy shit, like, yeah, like you can actually make something out of this and you can actually do something really cool with this. And, and my thoughts and my ideas and the way I frame things and my personality is like something that I could actually like make a living off of, which is just huge. Yeah, right. Whenever I talk to people with different platforms, something that always comes up in my mind, at least, is what is your relationship like with your followers in general? Kind of like how I brought up, I mean, it's your personal brand. You know that the, some of them are coming for certain content that you post. But I mean, is it more that, you know, you might tweet some stuff and you have some of the same people retweeting or commenting, or does it go beyond that at all? I mean, like, I for sure notice um, when the same people comment and retweet. And like, I know there's like a pool of at least like 12 people, let's say who have my notifications on because they're immediately the first yeah, ones to yeah. like come back and hit the likes. And like, so I, uh, it's, it's like kind of comforting in a way. Like you always have like this small circle of people. That's just like, hell yeah. Like cheering you on for like whatever you do, yeah. which is really cool because like, that's like a demographic of my followers that, for me is very interesting. And, uh, I think it's like something that like, I've like kind of struggled with in terms of like building a personal brand is that like, I do jump around a lot in the kind of stuff that I tweet. And like, sometimes I tweet like observational shit. Sometimes I tweet like joke formats. Um, sometimes I tweet like super serious stuff. Sometimes I tweet like absolutely just like absurd out of the blue shit that comes into my head, usually when I'm talking to Michaela at like 2am. So that's been kind of hard in terms of like connecting with followers, because you're right, like people do come back for a certain kind of um, content. So that's really cool to have like those really loyal followers who always like the things that I do and who always comment and um, who are just like excited no matter what I do, uh, because it it helps me feel uh, like I have more creative freedom and like I don't have to find one particular thing and stick with it. But I mean, at the same time, that's also totally why I've plateaued in followers because people are looking for consistency. Right, you're all over the place. Have any. <laughs> I was, that's what I was going to yeah. ask. It, it is it is crazy how I feel the same way of my own personal feed. I mean, I'm not really in the same boat as far as trying to build a personal brand necessarily because I mean, this is kind of my job. So I mean, I spend all day on Twitter for other mm-hmm. brands anyway. But I mean, like even for my own personal stuff, and even with this podcast, I've found the same issues, whereas my interests are kind of all over the place, scatterbrained. And I, I know what I want to talk about and what I'm thinking about. But then I have to think, oh, wait, all these people, like even just like taking you, for example, and uh, Michaela and Viking and the other and Kellen and the people that I've talked to in your sphere, if they're coming to my podcast for that content and then say next week, they're not getting that they're getting something completely different. They just might 
never come back. So like that is like a strange aspect of this whole building a personal brand life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then I think, um, from that point on too, and this like a, totally applies to you and your podcast, because like, I, I definitely get the whole, like having a variety podcast and, and trying to make it successful. That's like super difficult to do. But then I was actually just talking to Michaela about this after, um, you guys recorded your podcast that like, I don't really care who you talk to on your podcast or what you talk about, because like you are such a good interviewer and you are so entertaining and so thoughtful, like no matter what you're doing. So I think, (laughs) I know I like, don't have to like blow smoke. I'm already on your podcast. Um, (laughs) uh, No, but seriously. So like, I think that that's the key to, to variety and to keeping people interested and like maybe expanding the things that they're looking for and the things that, that they come back to podcasts and come back to Twitter for, I think you just, if you're going to continue to like have that kind of variety or just be like me and like throw everything you have at the wall and just hope it sticks. Um, I think you just got to really be confident in the fact that like, you're going to try really hard to make all of those different avenues really successful for you. Like it's more work for sure. And it's probably going to happen slower, but I think that variety, um, if you can really commit to improving in all of those different areas or like having the same quality of content in all those areas, then I think that that's ultimately the best thing. Why am I crying in the studio right now? (laughs) (laughs) That means a lot. I mean, seriously, I I really appreciate you saying all that. I mean, it is, it goes along with what we were just talking about previously and this whole idea of kind of when you build this personal brand, you get an ego from it inevitably and you're inevitably comparing yourself to other people and it becomes this point-based system where just the entire idea, the entire premise of someone else taking time out of their day to listen to me talk is so insane, which I'm yeah. sure is similar to how you feel, where it's like people are taking time out of their day to follow you and repost your content and like invest in who you are as a creator, essentially. I mean, that is such a it is such a bizarre space to occupy because you're inevitably, you know, working that balancing act of like, okay. I have to be self-aware enough to care about my audience. But to your point, I mean, you also, if you really care about your audience, you just have to be yourself and like really put your best self and your best work out there day after day. And the right people, I guess, in an ideal world will uh, find you eventually. So that was really sweet. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, like for real, I was so excited when you messaged me about this because like I have been listening to your podcast for months and I've been like, yeah, dude, I've like fingers crossed. I had like been hoping for this day. So when you messaged me, I was like, oh my God, fuck yes. I was so excited. And I texted Michaela right away. Um, And yeah, so this is like, this is awesome. I'm I'm really, really psyched to be on here. Have you done other um, podcast interviews? I know you did that one it was like a radio show right yeah um so that radio show uh back in vancouver um i was on there twice and then after that they actually invited me on to be like another member which is so cool um shout out to chris and nigel they're the coolest dudes ever and i miss being on that show all the time with them um but then unfortunately that was like two weeks away from me moving to uh, Los Angeles, but we're going to, we're going to try and set something up where I call in or like have like a good quality way for me to be on the show. That doesn't just sound like I'm a caller. Right. Um, so yeah, so we're going to do that for February and that's really exciting. Um, and then other podcasts now I, yeah, it's just been the radio and, uh, just been this podcast here with you now. I had like, 
a weird interview kind of thing at um, this community college back home. And it was like very impromptu. Like I didn't really know it was going to happen, but like I, uh, I was picking up a book or something. I can't remember, but I ran into one of my old professors and uh, she's a, an English professor. And she was like, Hey, so like I follow you on Twitter and it's crazy that all this is happening. Do you want to just like come talk to my English students about like writing oh, and cool. creative writing? And I was like, sure. Like I like was just intending to like buy a book or drop a book off or whatever. And then I just ended up kind of like shooting the shit with this class and they asked questions about like internet fame. It was supposed to be like a talk about writing, but it was definitely just more of like an interview. Like right. <laughs> how did you get there? So yeah. Um, but no, this is, this is it. So when you compare just your day-to-day career, obviously, I mean, you're a writer online, not just with Twitter, but now with Funny or Die, which we can get into in a little bit. It's like, how do you compare that style of output versus talking? Like, do you prefer typing and writing to talking? Or are you comfortable talking? Um, I'm very comfortable talking. Um, you seem comfortable I, talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's weird. Like, I'm I'm very quiet uh, in real life, but not because I'm, like, uncomfortable. I just, like, don't have a lot to say. And I'm actually just like very comfortable with silence as I don't think that you need to like fill the air with speech unless like you have something really cool to say. Um, but then I also have like no filter between like my brain and, and my mouth or between my brain and Twitter. And like, I don't mean that in like, I say bad things kind of way, but like, I'll just like say something and then afterwards be like, that was so dumb. That was so (laughs) fucking dumb. Like, um, Yeah. And it's like, and I have that, um, on Twitter too. I'll like, I'll think of something that I think is so funny. And then instead of like writing it down and banking it in my drafts and then like coming back to like revise it later and make it better, like a fucking comic and a writer should be doing, I'll just like, like get it out. out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I'll come back to it like two days later and be like, man, this would have been so much better if I like framed it this way. So like, that's definitely the similarity that I have between talking in real life and and writing is that I don't actually like utilize the fact that you don't have to immediately throw everything out on the internet. You can revise it. And that's something that I've been trying to work on really hard. Yeah. That is so true. I mean, you can't, it's, it kind of works both ways because I was talking to a Viking a little bit about this and he was saying how some of his best tweets are essentially word vomit that he doesn't even remember tweeting at like 2 AM and stuff. I mean, sometimes it really, when you just throw shit at the board, it really works. But then other times, yeah, you go back and you're like, wait, ah, like if I just worded it this differently, it could have made the difference between like 5,000 likes and 10,000 likes, like just something like that. That's the worst. I, that bugs me so much, but it doesn't stop (laughs) me because I keep just throwing shit out immediately without thinking twice about it anyway. So maybe one day I'll learn. Just pumping out content all day. I, I wanted to touch on this a little bit. We don't have to go too deep. I don't know how comfortable you are touching on all this, but I mean, you tweet pretty openly and pretty regularly about just depression and anxiety and mental health type stuff. So I mean, like mm-hmm. how generally speaking, like how important is it to you that you have the chance to express that online? Oh, dude, it's, it's hugely important to me. Um, I have never had um, a problem with talking about that, but I've had a lot of issue being heard. Um, so like when I was growing up, I had severe depression issues starting from the time I was probably like 11 or 12. And 
I tried to come to my parents about it when I was in uh, high school. I think I was like 15 or 16. And then that was like the age where like I realized like this isn't a normal thing. Mm. This is like not everybody feels like this. And it was like things that I'd been expressing for years like to my friends or like that they'd been dealing with for years. But I came to my parents about it and they took me to our family doctor and he was like, take B vitamins and then like sent me on my way. Oh, geez. And yeah. And then um, I think it was like six months later, um, I had started uh, harming myself and I came to my parents again and I was like, I, something needs to change. Like, I don't know how to do this. And then my parents just not to like talk shit about them or anything. Cause like, I love them. They're great, but they never placed a lot of value on my mental health or they just attributed it to me like, Oh, you're just a moody teenager. And they never mm. like understood like the gravity of it. Yeah. And, um, and it affected other areas of my life uh, immensely the older that I got. Um, so like, I've always been a really good student. I test really well. I, cannot do homework to save my life. Like I would have like high nineties for tests and quizzes and then be getting like 20% in homework. Cause like, no matter what I did, no matter where I went, like I would change my environment. I would work with music work without music. Like I just could never fucking do homework. And then I missed a lot of school because of depression. And, uh, when I graduated high school and I went to, um, art school, it affected me there crazy because it's like obviously like the the difference between university and uh high school even when you go to an art school um is is the it's drastic it's a drastic change and i i figured out pretty quickly that art school wasn't for me which i'll tell you stories about after because it's a fucking doozy um (laughs) but then i went to uh just like this community college just to kind of like stay in school and not just be like sitting around and trying a bunch of different things and i had to drop out because like i just couldn't handle the workload and that killed me because it was like what the fuck like am i getting dumber like i've always been a good student like can i just not do college like am i just gonna be one of these people that just can't ever do this and then I think I was 18 or 19 at that point no I yeah I think I was 19 or 20 actually and uh, I decided to take my mental health into my own hands and I booked an appointment with uh, just like a general practitioner and ran him through all the ways in which it was affecting me and he um, sent me to an ADHD specialist and she was amazing. Um, and we like talked through all of my shit and she was like, basically like drew me like a map and she was like, okay, so you have anxiety and you have depression because you have ADHD that has never been dealt with. And it was just like a web of like wow. things that were caused by other things. And I was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. <laughs> so yeah. So I started medication and, um, I had like a fully grasp of, of what was going on inside my head. And that was life altering, like Mm. just to have someone listen to me and take me seriously. And then that was also like a big realization period for me too, where, um, it doesn't have to be like, you don't have to talk about it negatively. You don't have to have it as like an albatross really. It's like the more candid and the more normal you are about it. Um, I think the better it is for you. And I think the better it is for everyone around you to not feel like they're walking on eggshells or like they can't ask or say certain things. And then ultimately, um, you never know who might hear you and who might 
need to hear that and that like you can be open and honest about struggling and you can be open and honest about the things that are going on in your head that you can't really control so that's that's a huge thing for me that's something i'm really really passionate about right i mean that's amazing that you're able to get that help and do the whole thing basically with your own will at that point i mean since since you started this whole down this whole path of you know sorting out the uh, mental health issues and kind of getting yourself on a track. I mean, have you since then, since that point, talk to your parents and friends about it from growing up? Like, what's your relationship like with it now? My relationship with my parents, my relationship with my dad is great. I am 100% my dad. Um, I have... I'm a child of six, so my, yeah, I have three older sisters, uh, an older brother and a younger brother, and my sisters are very much our mom and my older brother and I are our dad. Um, and they're just so opposite. Like my dad is very like deadpan and very quiet. And my mom is very outgoing, very charismatic and very like just adds energy to a room. But then like, that's like always been kind of exhausting for me. So mm-hmm. I've, I have a really good relationship with my dad. And although he like might not understand a lot of like mental health related things or he's like learning as he goes. The great thing is, is that he actually tries to learn and tries to listen and tries to take on this new information as opposed to just shutting everything down. Mm. Um, and my mom is not the same way, fortunately or unfortunately. So I'm on stimulants. Um, and she actually like compared that to taking acid one day. She was like, Yeah. And uh, the funniest thing was I was doing work at home for the bar that I was managing. Um, So I was doing like a ton of paperwork and stuff like that. And I had like things spread out all over my desk and I was still living at home at that point. And my mom came in and she was like, see, you don't need medication in order to function. And I was like, I'm on so many drugs right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like you have no idea. Like I'm like functioning at full capacity because like I'm actually I was given the tools to function now um so she just she told me she doesn't believe in ADHD which was like it's not Santa like (laughs) you can't just not believe in it so my mom's very resistant to it but whatever I just I just don't bring it up with her anymore and my siblings are very very receptive to it uh because they like basically went through their own journeys separately as adults um kind of like I did so after going through all of these kind of things together we all get to talk about it now and be like, Oh, like I went through the same process as you did, or like I felt the same way that you did. So it's, it's been a thing that's like brought, um, all of us really close together. And, uh, it's really helped me with the way that I interact with my younger brother who's in grade 10 now. And like the things that like, I make a point of talking to him about. Right. You um, get to be an example. I, yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean like he's the sixth and the last one. So like, fuck, we got to get this mental <laughs> down. So we can get yeah. one of them, right? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> there's everything riding on him <laughs> i think it's it's always uh, really wild talking about mental health stuff between sort of younger generations and older generations just generally because i feel like i mean as a whole i mean obviously we know people relate through their own experiences and you know up until fairly recently there wasn't even really that much of a societal understanding of mental health. It was very compartmentalized into certain areas where people knew, oh, schizophrenia is a thing, like, oh, suicide is a thing. But there weren't vastly covered areas of people talking about this stuff. And I think for me, because, I mean, I come from a pretty similar 
background to you insofar as, you know, my own mental health stuff uh, with my parents and my sister has little sisters struggled with that since she was really young and it was always bewildering to them and they didn't really know uh, what it was or how to treat it or, you know, what to make of it because the whole the whole conversation was just so new to them. And I don't know, for me personally, like when I look at it, I try to frame it like I think for a lot of parents or even just people who haven't necessarily experienced uh, depression or anxiety, like they almost, because they're trying to review, they're trying to view it through how they can relate. So they relate it through severe sadness or Mm -hmm. severe nervousness. And they look at these things where it's like, oh, well, I've felt really lonely or I've felt really sad at points in my life, but they don't really, it's hard to, it's hard to connect the dots to them to be like, no, like depression isn't loneliness. It's not just being really sad or down about something. Like it's literally a mental black hole that is sucking you in and you can't really rationalize it. So, I mean, like, even just, like, when you try to rationalize, like, oh, I'm sad because, you know, this person hurt me or my friend died or whatever it might be, and that's why I am sad. Like, that's a lot different than just being hit with a wave of depression that you can't explain away. And, you know, so I think because of that, then it becomes a lot harder for people that haven't experienced that to put their finger on it because to them they just think like oh to my own experience i've i've felt depressed because you know like in popular culture you hear people use words like oh i'm so depressed today or i'm feeling so anxious today and they become almost normalized in ways that just aren't what the actual clinical definitions are and i think for me personally that's always been a big bridge to a kind of gap between my parents not just my parents but a lot of older generation people in my life and a lot of younger ones who it seems like that conversation is it's getting better but up until very recently it was difficult to know where to start yeah yeah I totally get that and then also too there's like the for like my parents like they for sure have some unchecked mental health things that they need to get dealt with Mm -hmm. and then like the more that I learn about it the more that I could look back on um interactions with my parents or like the way that they behave and I could assess like oh shit like you definitely have depression and like you definitely need to get this checked out yeah yeah and then like that's the frustrating thing too is that like maybe they can relate and maybe like they 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 could relate if if they understood that what they're feeling isn't just being sad that like you're feeling the same thing but they just don't have that that understanding themselves for like what they're going through like trying to explain depression to my mom is just like so frustrating because I'm like like you are for sure going through the same stuff and she's just like no sometimes people just have bad days and I'm like they come from a lot more of that even if even if uh, the parents or the people in general aren't conservatives they, they come just from that older generation which had much more emphasis on you know pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you know really just taking control of your life like okay do you are you having a bad day well you still need to show up to work like are you sick you still need to get this stuff done like are you in a bad place you still have to take care of your kids and that really that whole attitude I think taught generations of people just to suppress all of that you know dude yeah um (laughs) my mom my mom grew up 
uh, grew up on a farm in Alberta and my dad comes from like the most Catholic family ever. So like there's just blue collar suppression of emotions uh. and there's, yeah, there's like, it's suppression from every angle. So like just so many different things that need to be addressed, but the same kind of mentality is like, yeah, well, you just got to buck up and go on anyway. Right. <laughs> Do you like when you look at the issue of mental health as a whole, just in general right now, like, do you think it's exceptionally bad right now? And like, if you do, like, why do you think that might be? Honestly, like, I think that it's it's so it varies so much depending on where you are and where you're from. And like, I'm um, I'm learning more about that, uh, like now living in a new country and um, being exposed to different cultures, the attitude towards mental health is just like, it hinges so much on, on where you're brought up. So like, I can't speak to like a lot of different places and, uh, or like a lot of different like upbringings or cultures or, or things like that. But like, I do see it in, in Los Angeles culture, thankfully, and in Vancouver culture where like the, the shift towards mental health is, has been really, really positive. And like, there's, there's actually a billboard, uh, by my apartment and it's for, I think it's just for like a, like a suicide helpline. Um, I can't remember like the phone number or whatever, but it's this like beautiful painted billboard. And, uh, there's like a, like a black man in his like early twenties, I want to say, who was like, painted in these huge beautiful pink and yellow and blue billboard and that was the coolest thing because like just culturally one of the things that I was actually talking to uh, a bunch of my friends here was that like they have struggled so much with mental health because they had never felt like they were allowed to feel those things so like I think for me mental health has like always been way easier because like as as a girl um there's a lot more like emotions that are that are allowed in that scope Mm -hmm. um so i think it's kind of been like eye-opening and i definitely thought that like the attitudes towards mental health in general or the conversations were kind of all going in the same positive direction but then like the more that i'm exposed to other people the more i'm learning about like no that's just like my narrow view and my narrow experience but like culturally yeah the the shift for things like billboards talking about suicide like that's really really cool um and in vancouver there's a government-run campaign on all the sky trains and uh on the buses where like they kind of like dive into different mental illnesses and then they like feature like a different person um and they just kind of like run through like what depression kind of feels like and what anxiety feels like and like helplines are places that you can call. So like, it's way more normalized, um, in Vancouver and in in Canada in general, but like being here and seeing that it's actually like publicly being addressed for things like suicide billboards, like that I think is very, very positive. I just don't know if the reception individually or, or if the, the way that people are receiving that is moving in the same kind of positive direction, but Yeah, I mean, especially in just the L.A. area in general, like Hollywood and pop culture, I think the past few years, I mean, probably I'd say since maybe 2000, I think like 2014, just in general, with uh, the the way the Internet was moving and the way culture was moving, which is like a big year as far as a lot of um, a lot of like what was happening around the world was being seen through the the lens of the Internet for the first time for millions of people. And I feel like. 
since that point to now with a lot of the celebrity suicides and even just a lot of um, Hollywood actors and actresses who have come out and just started openly talking about their mental health issues. I mean, I feel like in a way, I mean, similar to what you said earlier about how, you know, when you tweet um, about openly about all this stuff and how that that can then potentially be something that someone else who needs to see that for that solidarity can then relate to it and not feel so alone. Like, I feel like that exact same thing has been happening on a major scale just in pop culture in general the past few years, which has been really interesting to watch because I feel like since, I mean, I don't know when it started, obviously, but I mean, I personally feel like there's been a fair shift in the past, I don't know, like 10 years maybe as far as mental health becoming more of a problem. Like it's hard, like like you said, and like we've kind of been saying, obviously these issues have been around since the beginning of time. I mean, it's essentially Mm -hmm. different, you know, output forms of PTSD that people have experienced, you know, from war and, you know, living in tribes and people like sleeping with each other's spouses and like the insecurities and the dangers of others and all that whole thing. I mean, this has been around forever, but I definitely think something about the past several years with the internet and with smart technology that something's changed where like certain, I mean, I know like in the past, I forget how many years it's been. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but in the past few years, at least suicide rates with women has spiked really bad. And it's just, it's so, it's so interesting to me to talk about because like you said, on one hand, it's hard to gauge how, how the conversations are going because you can see in pop culture and in media that it's being talked about more. But at the same time, it's like, are we doing, are we taking the right steps in practicality, just like you with going out of your way to get a doctor and to actually mm-hmm. get on track? Like, are we, as a culture, are we enabling more of that type of behavior or are we kind of putting this facade out there like you know everybody has depression like let's just all come together and just live with our depression and then is that like having a reverse effect like i don't i don't i don't know but it's it's really interesting to yeah. to talk about you know yeah and i think that that um just your last point is like a very fine line to walk um especially within like the comedy community the the whole just living with your depression thing right. because like, I'm there's, depressed. There's, I'm a sad boy. I'm a sad girl. Like that whole. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. There's like, there's, there's a huge difference, um, between being open and candid and comfortable talking about, um, your mental illnesses. But then there's also like, you kind of run the risk of just being so comfortable there that like, you don't actually take the extra steps to change it because then like it has become, who you are. And, and there's, there's so many ways to just like be comfortable being sad if you let yourself. Right. So like, I think that that's like a careful line that we should all be aware of that you can, you can be open and honest and you can talk about these kind of things as long as you don't let it keep you like so set there. Like you don't let it like run your life. You don't let it become your identity. You actually are proactive or, or trying to make things better for yourself and you don't just sit there and be like, well, I'm depressed. Yeah. So that's just who I'm going to be forever. It's like uh, the 
just another like weird thing about having a personal brand is that like if if you find success in that and if people respond well to that then that's going to make it that much easier to just be depressed online forever because it's it's working for you you know yeah it becomes like fetishized almost yeah. in some weird way totally for you personally like do you feel that twitter is like a net positive for mental health issues or do you think it makes it worse generally i would say positive for sure just because I think giving people the opportunity to be exposed to these kind of conversations and to be exposed to more people who might be experiencing the same thing, I think that's always a positive. Um, just giving people the opportunity to to get something beneficial out of it, I think that immediately makes it a positive. And like most of the DMs that I get uh, are people who saw one of my mental health tweets and like wanted to thank me for it. <clears throat> like I've tweeted about uh, my experience getting a doctor a lot. And like, I don't know if you saw it, but like a few months ago when I was moving down here, actually, I like wrote out in detail the steps that I had to go through in order to get my diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And um, before that, I just talked about like my like experience of being undiagnosed and like how shitty that was. And like the the response from that was so many people who were like, holy shit, like I had no idea that it was that easy. Like I, it's been so daunting for me to try and um, find a doctor or find somebody to talk to about this. So I just like never have. Or there were so many people who were like, I feel seen and like I, I feel less alone now. And you've you've given me the confidence to try and do something about it. Or like I just think giving anyone the opportunity to find a community is is the best way to start fixing things like mental health problems and and I think that uh, Twitter and um, smart technology and just anything that helps the world become a little bit smaller is is ultimately a positive thing for mental health yeah it's cool hearing that you have what it sounds like as a positive relationship with the internet whereas a lot of the people, I talk to the conversation tends to teeter the other way where there's kind of, you know, for, for someone like me or someone like you, we, uh, we work online and we spend a lot of time online. So it kind of becomes like this love hate thing where you're spending all your time on it and you get a lot out of it, but it can also be addictive and you can also catch yourself in those vortexes of just comparing yourself or whatever. So I mean, like just generally speaking, do you, feel like your relationship with the internet is more healthy at this point? Yeah, I totally do. Um, like you said, like I, I work on the internet, so I'm online all the time. And okay, the the update with um, Apple technology where they like give you a breakdown of your screen time was the most upsetting thing to ever happen <laughs> to me. Like, because I just like, I have to be on my phone or I have to be on my laptop all day, but you don't get to tell your phone that. So like at the end of the day, like I'll go home and I'll like accidentally like swipe left on like my lock screen and it'll say like some obscene number of hours. Yeah. And like, it might as well just say like, you're a piece of shit. Like you need to go outside and read a book. And like, I, it makes me so so angry. Um, but, um, sorry, I feel very strongly about that. I love it. Um, yeah, but uh, no, I, I think that my relationship with the internet, um, I think it like kind of was unhealthy for a while, like when you first start kind of popping off and uh, the, the initial like dopamine, that's the addictive kind of phase where you're like, holy shit, like this is awesome. I'm really popular. I'm trending in so many places. Like it feels good. Yeah, and then yeah. that's where you kind of start to get addicted and, and it's really bad to 
be that attached to it. But then once, well, for me, once I like got past that and once I actually like kind of fell into this little community, it's been so beneficial um, since then. Like I have so many people who like I genuinely care about and who I know genuinely care about me. And it's, it's really helped me build a larger, more diverse uh, support system. Um, and like I've met some of my now best friends through Twitter and yeah, I think ultimately it's it's a positive thing. Right. Yeah, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about that because this whole concept is so bizarre for I think most normal people who just they hear something like that and they think, what do you mean you met friends in real life through the internet in that way? Because when you think Twitter or Reddit or any of these kind of deeper internet forums and platforms it's not really it's you think most people spend their time on those platforms while they're at work just kind of shooting the shit and passing time like it you don't really think of it as a place where you'd actually build relationships with people but with you and with this whole kind of small niche group of people i mean you guys have all become good friends i mean i'm interested to hear how has your relationships developed in that way? Because like, I know you've hung out with Michaela in person before. Like, have you actually hung out with a lot of these people, or what's that yeah. whole process been like? Okay, well, it's it was really weird for me living in Vancouver and then falling into this group of like I don't know, it's like joke Twitter, like humor, funny Twitter. I don't know what you'd call yeah. it. The funny people on Twitter. Let's just call it that. Um, but, like, most of them, for whatever reason, I have no idea why, but, like, everyone lives in Arizona. Um, and I don't know if, like, they found each other or, like, they just decided that they were going to, like, take over the Internet together and they were already <laughs> friends in real life. But, like, that entire group that um, I became really close with, they're all either in L.A. or in Arizona. So, like, I would be sitting at home in bed on, like, a Friday night looking at my phone and everyone would be hanging out because, like, I don't know, let's say, like, Kellen went to Arizona for the weekend and so it would just be, like, a crew of, like, eight people who were, like, all hanging out and I would just be, like, sitting there listening to, like, sad music, looking at everybody's, yeah, like, yeah. snaps together being, like, <laughs> have fun. So that was, like, a trip for me when I moved down here and actually got to, like, meet everybody. Um, so, like, I don't know if that's, like, like, a common thing or if, like, I just happened to luck out and become friends with internet people who, who managed to like become tight in real life. Yeah. Um, not get murdered by a serial killer. Yeah. So far so good. <laughs> um, it's really funny. Uh, like the first, the first weekend that I was here. So I got here on like really, really late on a Sunday. And then that next weekend, uh, my mom was like, so like, how's everything going? Or like, she's really worried about me, like genuinely very worried. Yeah. Cause, cause it's a big, scary city and you like hear bad things about LA. So she was like, are you being safe? And I was like, yeah, I'm, yeah, don't you worry about it. Like I, I'm, I'm not talking like strangers. Like I'm staying on like all the main roads. And I was literally like at a bar with like six people from the internet. I just met for the first time. <laughs> um, no, I've, I've met so many people. I met, um, Joey and Kelly and Jody and um, Eric Curtin, who got me the job here, um, and I met Michaela. Uh, I actually went to her house for Thanksgiving, which was so oh, fun. That's amazing. Yeah, and then she came out my way, and we went to uh, the comedy, uh, the comedy store together. Oh no way! Who do you see? Um, it was just like I think it was like a Thursday or something. So or like, like twelve people there. 
it, it was actually like weirdly busy and um david spade showed up yes dude yeah, was, i saw him when i was there too last yeah it was really weird where it was like <laughs> like 9 30 on like a wednesday or a thursday and i was like what the fuck is david spade doing here um but yeah so that was really fun and uh i met kellen and then i met like a lot of people um from the internet that like i wasn't really tight with but i knew existed like uh, Alexa, who I'm closer with now, now that I've actually like met her in real life, she's like had me at a couple of her parties and she's so sweet. Um, Aubrey got Jen, who I maybe had talked to twice before I met her. And now she's like one of my favorite people ever. So like, I've met like basically everyone, I think, except for Viking. God damn it. Oh, whoa. I still met Viking. You're first. Yeah, I know. So I'm going to try and make my way out to Arizona, if for no other reason than to fucking meet Viking and Grace, finally. Just once. That's hilarious. Yeah. The first person who introduced you to all these people, and you haven't met him. I know. I know. And he's been out here <laughs> twice. I mean, it's tough. I mean, well, at least now you're there. I mean, so it's a lot easier. You're not in Canada, so chances are yeah. you'll run into him now. Yeah. Yeah. My, <laughs> my chances are greatly increased. Definitely. Like Viking just randomly decides to go to Alberta or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah i'll be there this tuesday and <laughs> oh my god yeah casual weekend trip <laughs> of course like you do i mean yeah it is what it is like what what what's been since you moved down there what's been the biggest uh like just culture shock in general oh that's a good question uh i don't know it's like it we're so culturally different. So, like, I don't know, like, what the biggest culture shock has been. I think one of the weirdest things was walking into a grocery store and having, like, so many aisles of alcohol. Like, that, <laughs> like, I like I knew, I knew that you guys, like, sell booze everywhere here. Yeah. But then, like, I still, like, walked into Target and I was like, what the fuck? Like, that right. bottle of vodka is the size of a baby. Like, what are you doing <laughs> selling it at a Target? Like, Jesus Christ. And then I went into a Walmart and there were like guns there. And I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, this is wild. And I texted Michaela about it. I was like freaking out. I was like, there's wine in a grocery store. And she's like, I know. <laughs> um, so that was weird. I think the biggest thing for me has been accents, honestly, because like yep. I don't ever think of myself as having an accent. And then like I moved down here and that was one of the first things that my boss brought up was my accent really and like yeah someone brought it up in like a meeting too and i was like i speak so normally all of you guys have accents <laughs> um yeah and it's uh oh the the temperature oh my sucks. god holy shit i'm gonna die in the summer it's like it's like 21 degrees celsius right now which is like somewhere in the like low 70s mm -hmm. fahrenheit i don't know i'm never gonna learn fahrenheit i i can't do it, no matter how hard i try but this is like, like, like yeah we're the opposite so it's like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is like june weather in vancouver oh my god like, so is that the people, warmest it gets uh no it'll get up to like the like mid 30s in celsius which is like 80 90 something but okay. for like a month okay and then it'll be very like temperate so like it's gonna it's hot as fuck here and there are parrots did you know that there are like wild parrots oh yeah in Los Angeles? <laughs> yeah yeah okay so like one of the first nights that i uh was sleeping in my new apartment i like woke up at like six in the morning because i swear to god i was like 
I hear a parrot. And I like thought I was like dreaming and I tried to go back to sleep and I was like, no, there's legitimately a parrot somewhere. So I like thought like someone had like a pet or something. And I looked at my window and there were fucking parrots. And I was like, this is wild. I have seen more parrots than I've seen like crows. <laughs> it's crazy. It still blows my mind. I've been here for three months. It still blows my mind. It's amazing. Yeah. LA is just, it's one of those places where actually the, when you spend some time there, it does live up to what the movie is depicted as. I mean, there is literally everything in that town. Like, it's not, and people are so, like, the first time I went, I think, I'm trying to think back, I think the first time I visited L.A., we spent most of the time just in the actual, like, metropolitan, like, sort of center-ish of L.A., whereas, obviously, it expands into countless suburbs, and it's such a vast area and it's yeah. it's crazy like when you actually just start driving around and it's like the stretch from east to west is just hours and hours of traffic and it's just wild how much how many people are there like it it feels crazy i mean like the only thing crazier than i guess i've experienced is new york city which is obviously like everybody's compiled into this very tiny area i mean it's like yeah. that but it's so it's such a bizarre place, man. I mean, have you been have you been enjoying it? Like, do you feel like it's home yet? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. I I don't feel not at home here, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, like I I was pretty I don't know. I don't get nervous. I don't like freak out over things. So like I wasn't nervous getting on the plane. I wasn't nervous getting off the plane. So like I already like came here feeling very comfortable. So I'm happy here. I'm I'm really happy here. I'm really comfortable. I don't know if I'd call it home yet, but I think that's just because like I haven't had enough time to like really go many places. So I think like the more familiar I become with the city, the more I'm going to feel like nestled in and at home. Right. Have you spent um like obviously you've met people from Twitter and I'm sure you're hanging out with people from work and and, and mutuals there, but I mean has it been easier or hard for you on like a relative scale just finding real friends to spend time with? It's been very difficult, but that's just because, like, I haven't had time to, like, go out and do things. Like, yeah. moving here has been, like, it was way too easy at first. Like, okay, so I got my visa the day I went to the airport because I'm on a visa through NAFTA, so that's how you have to do it. Mm -hmm. You go to the airport, you buy your ticket, and then at customs... They, like, check over all your shit, and it was done in, like, 30 minutes, and then I had a visa. Wow. And, yeah, and then I found um, my apartment within, like, three days of being here, and it was all, like, so simple at first, and then the other shoes dropped, yeah. <laughs> and it's been, like, so annoying. Like, ordering furniture, Ikea canceled my order and never told me. What? Um, so I had, yeah, I was like waiting for furniture for like a month and I called them four times in a week and they kept redirecting me to different people. And then just like the line would go dead and they would just like leave me in dead air. So like, Jeez. I, yeah. So like, that's been really difficult. Just like little things like that. Uh, I had the worst case of tonsillitis immediately after New Year's. I didn't even, like, do anything. My best friend came down here for New Year's, which was awesome. And we just, like, went to, like, a few different bars and then came home and made nachos and, like, didn't really do anything crazy. And the next day, I was dying. And I was <laughs> on three different kinds of antibiotics. And uh, I was out for, like, a week and a half, two weeks. So, like, it's just been, like, one thing after another. Oh, and I'm sure you've been following my fucking issues with the bank which has been the most frustrating thing i've ever Dude. had to do. <laughs> i'm so like, sorry i literally had like 30 dollars <laughs> for i think 
a four-week period. Oh, my God. I know. And I had to go into the bank eight different times. And, like, I, it's been it's been a struggle. Wait, wait, so, wait. Like, Have you gotten your Ikea furniture yet, though? No. What? <laughs> no. We have to start, like, a harassment campaign on Twitter to be like, come on, Ikea. What the hell? Yeah, so they, like, just, they canceled my order. They, like, refunded my credit card, didn't say anything about it, and I was just sitting here twiddling my thumbs. And then I was going to order more furniture, but then I couldn't because I didn't have access to any of my money because the bank froze my accounts. So, like... And, like, one thing after another. Um, But, like, I finally have access to all of my paychecks that have been piling up now, which is very cool for things like living and paying rent. So I'm going to go furniture shopping, I think, next week. I have, like, half my furniture, so I think that's also, like, contributed to the whole not feeling at home thing because, like, I'm living half moved in. (laughs) Um, But uh, I work with the coolest people, so, like, I uh, hang out with them, and um, I'm going to start going to open mics and doing cool things like that too now that my schedule and my life is kind of like starting to level out so um, I'm really really looking forward to that because like I've never been a super social person I'm always okay just like hanging out with myself Um, but now I think just like the the hype of like living in a new city I'm so down to just like go everywhere and meet everyone so yeah I'm gonna start taking advantage of some free time soon which should be really exciting and you're in LA where there's just endless things to do I mean you said open mics were you ever are you getting into like stand-up comedy like have you done that in the past like what are you thinking for that yeah um so I used to do stand-up uh in Vancouver Oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, but nothing like crazy. Like Vancouver, the comedy scene is very, very limited. There's like two actual comedy clubs. And then there's just a bunch of different venues where it's like three-story houses that uh, like t- 10 people rent out together and they've yeah. turned the basement into like a little venue. So like I would hop around and do a bunch of those. And I did one stand-up night at the bar down the street from the bar that I used to manage. Um, so I, I really, really want to get back into stand-up because um, I think it's just exciting to like test things out on a new culture and a new crowd. And plus, like, I can make so many more jokes because I'm foreign. Like, the the well of cheap Canadian jokes is so deep. And I'm really excited to start making, like, I'm new in town, really basic jokes that are guaranteed for a laugh. Seriously, though, you have so much context to work with because especially in L.A., I feel like it's just a lot of comedians that moved to L.A. They end up just staying there for years and years. So all their their, uh, material and their experience just kind of starts to sound really similar you know so you get to bring like an actual open book full of new perspectives and things that maybe will actually stand out from all the rest of these LA normies you know (laughs) LA normies yeah yeah totally um so I'm really excited uh to give that a shot and that's another really cool thing too is like being in a city fueled by creative people from all sorts of different places, all looking for the same thing. Like that's such a cool environment to be in. Right. Um, Cause like working in comedy and working in art is super difficult. And this whole culture of people who are not necessarily struggling, but who have decided to go like an unconventional, difficult path, like that's in like, very inspiring thing to be surrounded by all the time and it's very motivating yeah absolutely i I feel so bad we've been talking for an hour and i haven't even asked you how working with funnier die has been like how's it going down there um, no i knew like i saw the time um so i just like uh checked off another hour for this room and no one else is using it so yeah (laughs) um 
but yeah, fun your dies insane. It's so fun. Like, I don't know. I do you have anything in particular you want answered. Cause like, I could probably just talk forever about this place. I mean, just like, what's the company culture like? Cause I mean, obviously you came into it. Like you said, I didn't know this prior to you saying it, but you said, uh, Eric Curtin helped get you the job, which is dubstep for dads on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I know, does he work with funnier die? He did before I started here. So like, <laughs> like I, did not think I was going to get this job. So that group chat, um, Mickey Mouse Fuckhouse, yeah. you're in it, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So I don't know if you like remember or if you saw this, but uh, in October, Eric was like, hey, so there's a, an entry-level position available at Funny or Die if anyone who lives in Los Angeles like wants a job. And a couple people who live in Arizona, they're like, yeah, dude, like that'd be awesome. And I was like, I need that job. <laughs> I will murder all of you and yeah, your families like, for this job. Like I'm the farthest <laughs> one away, but please. Yes. So he like, yeah, so he like sent me the info and um, it it, like just sounded like right up my alley and I was like fuck yeah let's give it a go like what's the worst that could happen so I sent in my resume and an application and then I think over the course of like two weeks there was uh, a phone interview with uh, David who is now my boss and my hiring manager um, and then Chris who is like my boss boss um, who's the head of our department and then there was a video interview that was like an hour long um, where I met the entire team of people that I work with uh, so there's there's four of them where they like came in in twos and just like asked me whatever questions they had and vice versa and we just like kind of got to like chat and get to know each other um, through a Skype call which was really really cool um, and then I sent in some sample work uh, and then I think it was like a Tuesday afternoon. They called me and they're like, Hey, so do you want to talk about visas? And like every step of the way I was like, okay, it's been a good run, but this is, <laughs> this is where it ends for me. Like I like never, ever, ever expected to like actually get it. So like this whole thing just feels like I've been like tripping and stumbling the whole way. And it just happened to work out so well. Um, Dude, I'm <laughs> so happy for you. I was just talking to, I think, I think I talked to Michaela about this on the podcast. I mean, it's just so cool to see content creators at your caliber actually making money through the platforms that you've helped create and like the networks that you become a part of. I mean, this is like the dream for someone like you who's actually gotten involved with online culture to the degree you have. I mean, just from what, a year ago? I mean, that's insane. It's insane. It's insane. Like I am just a dumbass on the internet and now (laughs) I have a salary and benefits. Like what the fuck? (laughs) It's so ridiculous. And uh, I came into the company at like a very, very cool time. So I didn't know this until I got here, but uh, last January, um, they went through a crazy layoff transitional period. And um, there's actually only 60 people that work in the company right now. Mm. Um, So like, it's very sparse. It's, it feels kind of like empty sometimes, but it's also very cool because like I get to be here at a new kind of like rebuilding point. So like my team, uh, is like short form digital stuff. So we like, we're like memes and, um, short videos that end up on Twitter and Facebook and articles and obviously like all that kind of stuff. So it's cool to be able to get involved in so many different areas of the company. Cause like it involves so much more than 
what the job description was and what I thought I was going to be doing. And I'm like so happy about it. It's right. such a cool atmosphere. And you're like a jack of all trades with this stuff. I mean, you, you kind of you talked about how you went to art school, which I didn't know. That's super cool. I mean, I've seen some of your graphic design work on Instagram and Twitter, which is awesome. And it's like so you. You, you do that and then you do, you know, this online persona. Then you also do stand up and all that. So, I mean, with the people you're working with, are they also kind of jack of all trades? Like you work with a lot of comedians. Like what's the uh, culture like there? Yeah, well, that's that's the, the coolest part about all of this is that like no matter what department people are working in, um, the underlying commonality between everyone is that love of comedy and like whether or not like they're comedians themselves, they're just like really fucking funny creative people um so the people that i work with tam is a stand-up comedian well she's done stand-up before she's done stand-up a couple times and we want to start going to open mics together um but she is uh she's a verified account on twitter and she's an actress so she's in a lot of these like sketches and stuff like that so she is very creative and very funny and a comedian in a lot of different mediums um and then yeah like everyone that i work with is just so funny it's, it's so it's it's weird like I I thought it was gonna be like small fish big pond kind of thing where like I got here and I was like oh fuck like I'm not as funny and cut out for this as yeah, I thought it was. Right. but it like it was totally the opposite and like their creativity and their humor totally fuels me and like I I have grown so much in the three months that I've been here and it's it's such a cool company to be a part of because like there's a lot of different companies who kind of run in the same way in terms of like publication um, like, I don't know, like Huffington Post or like Vice or like BuzzFeed or any of those yeah. kind of like online media companies. But this one is so unique just because of that comedy aspect to it. Yeah. So what you're saying is fuck Jerry would kill it at your job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> fuck Jerry would do such a good job at photocopying everybody else's work and then taking credit for it. <laughs> that He would nail it over here. At this point, what do you think you would ever do if you met him? I don't know. I would you like actually hug him and be like, "I'm sorry for being a jerk," or you slap him? Um, I'm not a physical person, but I am very capable of cutting a bitch <laughs> down. Like I've, I'm not proud of it, but like I have made people cry with words because like I'm a writer and I'm a comedian, and like the words are what I know. Right, so like I right. feel like I would have some choice things to say. I, I kind of hope I have the opportunity just so that I can see what I would do because I couldn't really tell you i think it would depend on on where i met him like if he just waltzed into the office one day first of all that would be the day that hell freezes over because everyone here hates fuck jerry so much (laughs) um but i think just like like the idea of being able to call security and watching him get escorted out of the building would be just like so satisfying and i would for sure take my camera out and immortalize that forever I'd love it for be, to be one of those moments where, like, you're like, oh, can I get a selfie? And you get the yeah. Snapchat selfie, <laughs> and then you caption it, like, this fucking guy. Uh, like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that'd be perfect. That'd oh be my so God. good. I mean, so, obviously, with what you do, you're a big online original content creator and it feels like um, you listen to the episode i do with michaela and this is something that i've been trying to talk about a little bit more um on the show and obviously on the internet as well and you have too just how in the past couple of years it's really felt like these online comedians or joke writers whatever you want to say have been starting to get a lot more attention and clout which is super cool to see and i was wondering like with this whole 
Funny or Die series that you've been writing that I've noticed, uh, the Extremely Funny and Extremely Online series. Yeah. Like, was that your idea or was that there before you got there? Or what's the whole story with that? Um, yeah, no. So that was my idea. And uh, that was one of the first projects I was really, really excited to get started on because part of why they brought me on, a huge part of why they brought me on is because of my understanding of digital comedy and my appreciation for it. Um, and that's like a direction that uh, the company is trying to expand into. And I think that just needs to be valued more than it currently is, like not just in, in the company, um, but on a grander scale of just like in comedy in general. Um, so that was a, a series that I started and that I'm going to get back to very shortly, which is exciting. I've just had a lot of my plate for the last month, but that was my way of kind of giving like a, a, a face to all the people who create all this amazing content that is seen cross-platform and that is stolen and that everyone laughs and takes for granted. Um, cause I wanted to give them a chance to, to have a voice about like the more serious side of like, yeah, like we are creators and, and we are comedians and, and we are amazing, brilliant people who like deserve to have more yeah. credit for, for the work that we're doing. And it, the response was awesome. Uh, the response has been huge. Like the, the first two that I released, um, my bosses and I like talked about it after and they were really, really thrilled with uh, the interactions and engagement that I got. And they were like, yeah, like, please keep making this a series, like keep going. Um, and I've, I've talked to a lot of different uh, personalities online and I have like a, a roster of people that I'm going to uh, interview and write about. So I'm really excited to keep doing that because I just, I think that now that I have this kind of a platform and this kind of reach, that's like, I, I owe it to all these people right, to, yeah. to to give them more of more of a voice and and help other people understand internet culture and internet comedy culture and and that's going to be huge I think in in shifting the conversations and shifting the way that we all look at creators on the internet. Yeah, it's so cool that you're using your platform for good in that way. I mean, just the whole like we we talked about this a bunch online on Twitter. Just this whole concept of content theft and joke theft mm -hmm. and how. The internet as a whole, um, I, I kind of got into this with Viking uh, just last night, I guess that was, or the other night, uh, just how with uh, the fair use doctrine online, how there's not really any black and white set of rules as to what you can or can't do with other people's content. And that, in a way, has created what we see as the most beautiful and creative and innovative part of the internet, where you see these YouTubers who patch together a bunch of clips and videos and they make it into something new, or you see the, the really vast, uh, really like hyper-fast sharing of memes and how we can all... Something can go viral in an hour at this point, and everybody's seen it, and it then it keeps evolving and evolving until it crashes and dies after like a day at this point mm -hmm. because the lifespan is getting so much shorter for these things. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it's really cool because obviously prior to the internet, none of this existed, and now we have this open platform where there's not really a corporate or government interference, at least at a high level at this point. Obviously, it's getting to be more of a problem, but it's been pretty open up until very recently, which is great, but it also is like the wild west of online culture where it's different if someone like me sees a joke that you wrote. I'm like, oh, that's a cool joke Gracie wrote. I just share it 
on my Instagram to my friends, there's a difference between me doing that and then a company like BuzzFeed doing that where they're curating a feed that then incorporates ads and sponsorships and they're building a brand based on other people's content. So, I mean, like, this is something I've, I've been asking, obviously, all the, the folks who are in your similar set of shoes. Like, how do you feel about content theft and just the general landscape of internet culture right now? Well, I think that it's become more and more frustrating, but that's just because more and more people are becoming aware of it and, and understanding that this is actually theft. So, like, I think there's... It's, it's frustrating for me because, like, when I first uh, went viral and, like, BuzzFeed posted my shit, I was like, oh, my God, this is so exciting. But then, like, the more you learn about it, the more you're like, wait, this is theft and they're making money off of it. So, like, like learning more about it uh, has definitely been, like, frustrating and, and angering. And it's something that I, like, get riled up about on a daily basis. But I think that because it's becoming something that so many people are aware of and so many people are starting to kind of like understand. Um, I think we're like on the cusp of a a big shift and like you could, you could relate it to um, before, before copyright for music, Um, like how the beach boys stole all of Chuck Berry songs because copyright wasn't a thing. Right. And then people got mad and then copyright was a thing. So like, I hate the whole argument that people use all the time, which is like, well, it's not illegal. There's nothing that says you can't do it, but it's like, yeah, okay. But like, (laughs) that's how things change. So, so I think that, um, things are going in a good direction and, uh, I'm, I love the fact that like you are so passionate about this and that like you bring it up so much, um, because especially like with your influence as uh, someone who runs a brand account, like I think that's huge. Um, and then that's something that I've been pushing for too. Now that I am writing all the articles for Funnier Die, I think I don't know if you. Oh yeah, you did see it when I tweeted, and I was like, "What do you guys think would be like yeah, fair compensations?" Yeah, yeah. Because like I think that once again, like that's something that I have a responsibility to fulfill because like I've been bitching about like people stealing content for so long that now that like I'm part of a company who like does take advantage of other people's tweets and who does take advantage of other people's content. Like that's something that I, that I owe the rest of the creators and the internet community to be a part of and to try and start changing. So I think, I think we're on the verge of some cool changes and I'm really excited with the, uh, the way that things are going. Let me, uh, quick throw that poll question back at you then, which he tweeted out about like what, what, uh, I think I forget how you worded it exactly, but you essentially said, what do you content creators, like, how would you think about, uh, compensation for tweets? So like, what do you think about that? Do you have a solution or any ideas? I have ideas, but I, I don't know. Like there, it's just, it's a very big thing to try and tackle. Um, and I think the good, a good place to start is for me, like looking at all the different situations in which I use tweets and articles, like, uh, a roundup is like one thing because that's just like entirely tweets. But then like, if I'm writing about something funny that happened and I use like one person's tweet as like a reaction to it, um, I think that that kind of like value is different because then it's almost like taking like commentary, but adding it to the work that like I'm actually doing. Right. So I think like that value is different. And then I think 
this is going to take me so long because I really want to go through like the engagements of all of the different roundups um, and see what like the average profit is from ads and things like that. And then I think that that's going to give me like a good baseline to, to start placing value on like what they're actually contributing to our profits and, and how they impact us. I think I just, I need a lot more data before I can say what I think a fair way to compensate or a fair like formula would be. I'm going to have to crunch a whole bunch of numbers, but that's, that's where I want to start. Right. Yeah. Cause that's a good way of looking at it. If you think of it in terms of like you brought up how I kind of use the, uh, the brand, the Stakem account to talk about this stuff. Like the way I think about it through that specific platform is that if you or another joke writer were to engage with the brand or maybe write a joke for the brand or maybe, you know, just do something where we're playing off of each other for impressions and engagements, if there was a way to track, like, whatever that might be, like, say say the average Stakem tweet gets 50 retweets and 500 likes, and then say your engagement or your addition to that whatever it might be or just your your tweet that you um that you offer to the scenario say that does three or four times as well so then there's a situation there where you can kind of calculate what the value set of that is to the brand i mean similarly to what you're talking about how you you can embed tweets and articles or use them to commentate on with something you're writing you kind of have to splice out okay like where yeah where is our ad revenue like where is our viewership revenue with all of this and then determine what the value is. I think that's a good place to start because it is super relative and really difficult to mm-hmm. to pin down because obviously it's going to range dramatically depending on who the person's following is and how viral the tweet is. And then it's like there's also the whole thing where like say say Viking does a tweet and it goes viral and then a month or two later after it's not really doing anything anymore, then someone uses that tweet. And it's like, okay, are you're, you're, you know at this point that that tweet is really, really funny, so it has value. But it's also not like raking in impressions right now. So like, what's the value of it then? So it's interesting just because I think it all starts with the question that you asked, which is how do creators feel about this? Like what, what would creators want out of media companies and brands to start this conversation because obviously like there was that situation with Viking. I forget. It was like a few months ago where Buzzfeed stole one of his tweets <laughs> yeah. and then he changed his profile yeah. name. And it was like, fuck that you, Buzzfeed. Best, that was the best thing I've ever seen. I died at that. Holy perfect. shit. God damn it. He's so fucking smart. Um, yeah. And there were a couple of replies to that question that I asked that were like, I don't actually think any of them were from like creators. So like, I didn't pay any attention. Um, I think one of them was, and one of them said like, is it really going to be worth it though for like five or 10 bucks? And I don't think that the like emphasis here is on the dollar value or like the amount of money that like you would get per tweet, because just for me, it's about like the the principle of exactly. starting to value these creators and starting to to value this platform and and this medium, um, and I think that that's going to be the biggest shift too. So like yeah, sure, maybe it'll only work out to like five bucks, but it's the the point of it is is that we as a culture are starting to actually value the things that these creative people are making for all of us. So I think that's the most important thing. Right, because at this point there is virtually no value placed on like i think i've talked to a couple friends about this 
where I kind of equate it to if a comedian, say, say like Chris D'Elia, posted a stand-up bit on YouTube, or someone else posted a bit of his on YouTube, and it was just like a clip of something, and then say you saw that clip, and you were like, oh, that's a really funny clip, and then you just took that clip and then just like worded it in your own, like made that into a tweet or made that into your own stand-up bit. Like that would be stealing the mm-hmm. bit. Like, and because the, the, the argument a lot of the times with this stuff is like, oh, well, it's just on the internet. Like it's free because it's on the internet. And it's like, no, if you're on YouTube and you watch a movie and then you decide you're going to copy the script to that movie or you're going to copy like the, the song that you heard on YouTube or Spotify, obviously there's legal repercussions to that so it's this weird thing where yeah just right now there's no emphasis on respect of originality to these jokes because people are just so used to it's like we're inundated with especially curator accounts like um fuck jerry or the fat jewish who you know have built these massive million multi-million dollar brands off of just collecting the best of the best and then it becomes something that people just kind of scroll through for a mindless laugh a couple times a day instead of something that they look at and say oh someone actually put time into thinking about this and writing it and creating it. Yeah. And that's, that's super frustrating. Um, just cause like comedy is already like a hard enough thing to, to try and get into and try to be taken seriously in. And then to be dismissed as like, Oh, well like your stuff's on the internet, it's free. So whatever, like everyone has the right to use it however they want. Like it's like, it's so frustrating and it's disrespectful and it like, it's degrading like to, the, the value of the things that you're producing and, and it affects the way that you were, well, personally me, like as a creator, like that like fucked me up for like a long time before. Like I understood that like my, my work has value, even though it's on the internet. Cause that's like a pretty like rough place to be in, like being told that like, Oh, well like you should just be happy for the exposure. Cause like the stuff that you're doing doesn't actually have any value anyway. So I think the more that we like shift towards um, respecting and valuing creators and their original content. Um, I think the thing that's going to happen ultimately as a result of that is that we're going to see more creators and more like, there's going to be just more and more people who pop up because they have probably have these talents themselves and just like, don't pursue it because they don't think that it has value. So I think it's going to be good for our culture as a whole. And it's going to lead to a lot more really funny creators on the internet and, um, lead to hopefully more people like me or like Sarah who actually land jobs because of this kind of stuff. So, and it's so cool that people like you guys who have these platforms are the ones who are kind of leading the charge. I mean, specifically on Twitter with this whole, conversation because as we know at this point it's it's interesting talking about this as a whole separate subject where twitter at some point in the past few years has essentially become the place where memes start which i don't know when mm-hmm. exactly that happened i mean it was just like a few years ago because up until they added the the image response to tweets where you could respond mm-hmm. with like a, a gif or like a picture or whatever and then that like right. started this whole trend of like more people you know making memes and throw like exchanging all that except up to that, up to that point i mean there were 
places like web forums and Tumblr and uh, Reddit and 4chan and all these places where a lot of the original trends would start and they'd kind of like aggregate out there. Like it might start on 4chan, then aggregate to Reddit, which aggregates to Twitter. And then it just keeps going eventually right. to, to Facebook where your mom sees it. So like with, <laughs> so, uh, like with Twitter now, as we see, like Twitter is the main source. Like when you go to a page like a fuck Jerry or a Buzzfeed, like that's where you're seeing, you're seeing screenshots from Twitter on these. That's literally all BuzzFeed's Instagram account yeah. is, is it's screenshots of Twitter. So like, it's, it's so frustrating. So like Twitter's because be- like they don't even like, yeah, they like don't even like follow or they don't even retweet things on Twitter. It's exactly. like, well, it's fucking, it's so dumb. <laughs> it's so annoying. And then like they'll strip just like uh, with Barstool, they that, that thing with Kellen's video where they like, they still strip the, uh, the actual video and like stream it themselves and then re-upload it instead of just retweeting it. Or it's like, it's just this whole, again. Yeah. <laughs> that like blew my mind because I know that Barstool and like Lad Bible, um, they reach out to people people to like ask if they want to like monetize their videos and have them become like lad bible or uh, mm-hmm. barcel or whatever property because uh, a friend of mine like took a really funny video and uploaded it to facebook and um lad bible reached out to him and uh, i know people who have had barcel reach out to them so like that was like shocking to me that they actually did that because i thought that they were better about like at least videos with reaching out to people for permissions but i think it's just because like it's so hard to monetize on twitter so like the argument there is like yeah they stripped it and they re-uploaded on twitter but they're not making any money from it but it's like (laughs) it's just so different though when you're a brand at that size that's like the whole thing i mean so much of this can be scaled and and i talk about this a lot with stakeums twitter when I, I kind of have to morally, in some way, not justify, but I kind of wrestle with the whole um, idea of what I do with that account as kind of turning it into a brand persona, just because they're, they're, everything scales on social media. It's like the, there's a huge difference between Stakem as a company, like the size of Stakem, versus a company like Wendy's, which is like umpteenth times bigger than them like multi-billion dollar like franchise i think i'm pretty sure it's international so it's like yeah just thinking about like the scale and the kind of how that then translates into how we perceive those brands and like what their ethical standards are because like obviously if it's a smaller media company or a small business like you're not gonna you're not gonna get as mad you're not gonna get as like like why are they doing this because it's you know that they don't have a huge budget like they're not working with a lot but when it comes to these massive media companies like a barstool or a buzzfeed like you know that not only are they doing this in a realm where obviously they have budget to spend but they they've literally built in large ways they've built their entire brand off doing this which is so so different than say like if Stakem were to copy somebody's meme it's like that's not good and i i don't think i'd have done that in a long time but if if it's it's a lot different doing something like that versus if you're a multi-million dollar media company and you're copying somebody's meme because now it's like okay that's actually part of like the building blocks to your brand so it's it it is weird yeah and it's like it's 
it's infuriating to think about because like, could you imagine if Buzzfeed, let's say, could you imagine if they decided to start paying people for tweets, even if they (laughs) like literally (laughs) threw, but like, even if they like just threw like $3 at everyone for like their, their tweet roundups. And if this was like something that they got on board with the, the amount of time that it would take to like actually make big changes happen. Like, Oh my God, it'd be overnight. Like if we could get like one big company who was built on the backs of creators anyway, like fuck Jerry or like beige cardigan or anything. If one of them decided to like actually start treating creators with like their respect and, and compensation that they've earned, then like these problems would be over in a matter of days. Like everyone would change from there on. And I think that's one of the most frustrating parts from the outside looking in at the whole issue, because I look at, and I've referenced this kid's account at least three or four times at this point of the podcast, but the uh, Instagram account trigamimetry in the the kid Mm -hmm. who runs it is in high school and he's not making money doing anything with it. He's got close to a hundred thousand followers on Instagram and his entire brand building blocks, whatever you want to call it. Like he's, he's built his following off of asking content creators for permission to use their stuff. And then once, yeah, really doing the Lord's work over there. Yeah. (laughs) But it's to your point, it's so basic, just like his effort that he takes just to reach out via Twitter or Instagram, whatever, just to be like, Hey, do you mind if I use this? And then when he does that, he cites it. It's like a citation in his tweet or in his uh, Instagram post where it says, here's the at of the person who did it. Like, this is where it came from. And then he adds his yeah. like little caption. And it's just the idea that some 14-year-old or I don't know, he might be 16, but he's in high school. So some high school kid can take the time out of his day to do that and then a multi-million dollar company like buzzfeed that has probably a whole team of social media people who are working around the clock the idea that they can't do that like just take five minutes to dm you or dm sarah or michaela or whoever and just say hey saw this tweet we'd love to post it on our feed do you mind if we do that like that's such a simple task but it seems like you're asking the world of these companies yeah oh my god it's like just fucking that's like the first like lesson that you learn as like a human being is like ask permission (laughs) for things like holy shit right but like you'd think that we're asking the worlds of them but i don't know i i think i think the revolution is coming i think i think things are going to change for us and uh and hopefully that's something that i get my bosses on board with because i'm sure when i approach them with hey um can we start paying for tweet roundups i'm not gonna be met with a lot of like enthusiasm so yeah (laughs) i mean hopefully hopefully i'll be able to like actually turn some things around and then maybe we can start there get will ferrell behind this yeah right but but i think even even just even just using the the platform of funnier die as an example i mean you again referencing back to stakeum state like this is uh, people who know me know that okay i'm the person behind it and then i know you so like there's this kind of like mutual connection there where it's like okay we're we're kind of interacting on like a friend level online that i'm also managing this brand so through that i mean obviously i didn't start to uh to talk about this topic just for clout but inevitably it became a method for clout then for the brand like whereas stakem has done enough work at this point doing like tweet threads and shouting guys like you out and shouting this whole Mm -hmm. conversation out where then it becomes this thing where as this becomes more of like a revolution and more people are aware 
to the problem, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, Stake'em as a brand has clout among internet content creators. So make, similar to you, I mean, I'm, obviously it's not as simple as that, but it's at least a point that you can pitch to the company to be like, hey, this is the direction that things are moving in. This is a, a good look for the brand. Like, this is a good look. Like, this is you're supporting the people who are actually, like, really getting the butt of all of this content curation that's been happening for years. And when any kind of brand or company comes out in support of that, it's seen as overwhelmingly positive from that community because no one's really doing it. So to have people like you just kind of like leading the charge, like you and Kellen and Michaela and Viking, who you guys have tens of thousands of followers, that's obviously... like the first step like you guys are like putting this word out there to all your followers and people are becoming aware of the problem and then from there it becomes how do you educate companies and brands to take this into consideration in a way that it's going to benefit them because you know like at the end of the day so many brands are just about their bottom line there's people behind brands that care obviously like you and i both know at this point in our careers but at the end of the day like if you're trying to pitch something upward into the company like they want to know how is this going to affect our entire image in the long term and with this particular topic i think it's like being on the right side of history you know <laughs> yeah dude i like i actually like said those exact words to one of my coworkers, and it's really funny that you talk about all that and like how it's gonna like impact the the brand and the company in the long term because like i have spreadsheets and graphs and like like two pages <laughs> written out that i'm like fully prepared to like monologue when i when i have to pitch yeah, all of this yeah. but like because that's that's exactly the point and like it if brands could just understand like how beneficial this would be, if Buzzfeed would just like ask for permission, they would have all of these people like me and Sarah and Michaela and Viking stop saying fuck Buzzfeed every day. Right. And like, you guys have huge that would platforms. Be so good. Yeah. 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 Like they they're they're not helping themselves at all by doing this. And and that's Thankfully, the the side of this argument and the side of this whole like pitch and presentation that I'm planning on bringing forward in the next couple of months, um, that's the easiest part of all of this because like I I think it's really easy to see how beneficial this is for for any big company. Yeah. Um, it's just going to be about like number crunching and the dollars and things like that. That's going to probably be a little bit more difficult to to swing and to convince the people who make the big decisions of. But but yeah, it's it's the way that culture is moving and the way that we're all moving together and like the emphasis on the the content that's being created for free it's crazy to me that it's still not being valued yeah. and and i think that like the first company who does it which hopefully will be funny or die like they're gonna be like the pioneers right <laughs> yeah. yeah that'd be so cool to see and then and then it becomes this trickle down effect where it's like whatever you want to call it like uh everything happens for a reason because then it's like viking got you into twitter and then you got into this crew and then eric got you that job and then you got into funny or die and then it it changed so it'd be so cool yeah like not to be dramatic but like i think we might as well just say it like i am the chosen one like i'm (laughs) i am (laughs) i'm the messiah for the internet revolution here to lead my people into freedom and monetization <laughs> but not to be dramatic at all <laughs> no 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 um i'm also super humble you're basically uh daenerys from uh, game of thrones it's uh that's <laughs> mother mother of memes mother of memes <laughs>
Jesus. Oh my God, that's awesome. Um, do do you uh like with all? Okay, we can we can wind down here. We've been going for a bit, and I really I appreciate all your time with this, Gracie. It's been a really cool conversation. Yeah, awesome. Do you um like looking forward? Do you plan on staying in online media as a career, or do you see yourself doing anything else after this? Um, I. Definitely a plan in staying on online media for now, but like, I think it would be different if I was working for a different company, just because like I said earlier, like I have the opportunity to do so many different things here. Like, um, I have been doing some graphic design work for, uh, promotions for like HBO and CBS. Oh, wow. Um, I've been, I've been part of like pitching commercials to Walmart. Um, I make memes and do shit. Like we bought a jar of pickles and cut up pickles and spelled out Shrek's dick and like I got paid for that work that day um which is amazing um but then like yeah but then I also get to do really cool stuff like like interviewing people and writing like actually fun cool articles so like I definitely want to stay um in digital media and internet work for now just because I think it could lead to so many different things Mm -hmm. and um I even like within funnier die like one of my bosses, like when I first got here was talking about it and he was talking about a future with me, like being something for the company, like Zach Galifianakis, where he had like between two ferns, like that's like, right. Like, wouldn't that be so fucking cool? So like, I definitely want to stay with it because like, I just see so many opportunities for so much cool shit. That's amazing. Yeah. You could, uh, something with cotton candy. There has to be something you could do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'll, I'll I'll workshop it. I'll start brainstorming. (laughs) Wait, you you just mentioned something about graphic design, which brought back to my head. Are we never, does this mean we're never going to get that, uh, web comic that you started to do with Kellen or whatever that was? No. What happened with that? Um, I just think like, unfortunately we just both became too successful individually. Like he (laughs) He was just on the cusp of getting a, a new job uh, at College Humor, um, but then also still working uh, at his old job where he was, like, fucking killing it. So, like, he just had so many things going on and continues to have so many things going on because he's super creative and super funny. And um, so it makes sense that, like, he's going to become more bogged down with, like, actual work that's going to pay him money. Right. Um, and then same thing for me, too. Like, it was it was an idea that we had um, at just, like, a very inopportune time for both of us. Like, I think if we had had that idea like six months earlier, yeah, we for sure would have been able to like knock out a ton of those comics. But, um, unfortunately for both of us right now, it's, uh, it's on the back burner, but who knows, maybe once we get rich and famous enough to have some like downtime and chill, or, uh, maybe we could do like, like a college humor, funnier die, meetup kind of thing and band together for the sake of making some really funny web comics there you go um, but we'll yeah who knows who knows <laughs> that's that'd be awesome yeah i was wondering about that because i remember you were like it was being posted on like your instagram and stuff and i was thinking this could be the coolest thing ever but then yeah life happens and then you got to do actual shit to make money and so was yeah. there was there anything else uh you wanted to hit no, dude, I think you you hit all those points that I was planning on talking about anyway. You're oh, once again just like such a good interviewer. You really made this super easy. Jeez, well, that's that's great. I mean, I I love hearing that. I really really appreciate it. I mean, it's like a nice 
it's a nice brush of the ego, but it's also for me <laughs> when you when I'm doing these things on my own. I think it'd be different maybe if I was rich and had a producer or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because for for yeah. me, I do the whole thing on my own. So when I'm going through and editing, I have to like listen to myself talk, and I hate it. So I'll be listening to this whole thing like, oh, like why did I say that that way? Or, <laughs> or oh, that was so stupid. Why did you word it that way? And it just becomes this sort of self-hate thing where I'm just listening to myself yeah. for hours. And no, but I really appreciate all the kind words and you coming on because you're you and that whole crew. I mean, you guys have been really Really, uh, not just super friendly and everything, but really influential in my own creative process in the past year or so since we've all been interacting. I mean, the whole I talked with Viking a little bit about this when we were doing the show. I mean, this whole landscape of specifically on Twitter, but just general Internet humor has really revolutionized in the past or I should say evolved, not revolutionized, but it's evolved in the past uh, couple years or so. And now it's, it feels like it's really peaking with what you guys are able to create. So yeah. it's super cool getting to know you guys and being a part of the whole ride. Yeah, dude, it's super awesome to like have gotten to know you and through Twitter and all this and you using your brand powers for good and then like doing all this stuff on your own time, um, like this podcast and really just like shedding a light on all this kind of cool stuff. Like it's just it's it's really, really cool to be a part of this whole Internet culture at, uh, at like you said, at a time where it's like really starting to peak and turn into something very, very cool. Awesome. Well, I again, really appreciate the time stay warm in LA because right now it is it is freezing out like just when I was thinking about this before we started to record I'm like it is dark here already and it is cloudy and cold and you're just living it up and you're you're over there being like oh it's so hot and I'm just like in my head I'm just like bitch like (laughs) I'm actually dying like I work like t-shirts and like shorts to work and someone here was like it's a desert cold I was like fuck you desert cold like you don't know what cold is. But yeah, thank you. I'll do my best. <laughs> Canadian cold. That's it. All right. Well, I'll catch you back on Twitter, okay? Thank you so much yeah, again. Yeah, thank you so much. This is awesome. All right. Peace out. All right. Bye, dude.